morning. Today we're going to be in John 11, 17 through 44. Um, this is a longer passage, so I would encourage you to have it in front of you throughout. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. John's gospel is structured around seven signs that Jesus performs leading to his crucifixion and resurrection. And our passage today is the final and seventh sign. And in these signs, Jesus is revealing himself to be the life and light of men who has brought grace and truth. As we enter John 11, we see Jesus learn that his friend Lazarus is ill. And out of love, Jesus waits two days to come to them. And during that time, Lazarus dies. Yet Jesus comes to Bethany despite the, the danger to himself posed by the Jews who he is irritated with his words and works. And this is where we pick up in John 11, 17 through 44. Read with me. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. 
Father, you see and hear us in our grief and pain, and you know that we are but dust, yet you care for us. May we have ears to hear your word this morning, remove distractions as we seek to hear from you. In the name of Jesus, amen. The mention of death simultaneously cools the mood of a room and grabs everyone's attention. And in a week such as this, in the wake of the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, we are reminded again of death's devastation. And there may be some of you wrestling with the reality of death right now, and this passage speaks into that pain and grief. When death hits close to home or reveals itself in a particularly sinister way, we tend to be awakened to this reality. The rest of the time, we tend to do a couple of things to minimize the impact of death on our daily lives. The first is that of avoidance. We don't talk about it, and we keep it at an arm's distance. We see this in that we don't die at home anymore. Rather, death is contained in hospitals and nursing homes, where we don't venture unless absolutely necessary. This allows us to keep a healthy, healthy distance from death, never fully encountering its power, never reckoning with its significance. The other route is that of desensitization. We'll consume crime TV shows, and we'll constantly hear about the deadly tragedies on the news. Some want to know every detail about how people die. And if you don't believe me on that, there's a website called findadeath.com that will allow you to look at up celebrity deaths in gruesome detail. And it has somewhat of a cult following. And the result of this is that we may momentarily be affected when we hear of another tragedy, another shooting, another person who lost their battle to cancer. But we don't often find ourselves deep in grief. That is, until death hits too close to home when we realize that despite our best efforts to avoid and desensitize, death still hurts, especially when it affects us directly. And there is an element of appropriateness to the level of grief corresponding to the relationship that we have with someone, and the closer we are, the greater the grief. Death brings pain and devastation in a powerful way because of its finality. And this is precisely why death is an ultimate test of our faith. Death can either clarify and strengthen our faith on the one hand, or throw it into confusion and doubt on the other. And we see here in John 11, Jesus is walking into a family tragedy, the death of Lazarus, that has left great pain in its wake. And through three encounters, one with each sibling, we find that Jesus, while recognizing the pain and devastation of death, calls us out of unbelief, which is ultimately more deadly than death. And he calls us to a personal, robust belief in himself as the Lord and giver of life. Or to say it in a shorter way, Jesus calls us to believe in him as the one who has power over, over death, even in the midst of grief. Grief which can lead us to unbelief. And our first encounter here is with Martha and her true yet insufficient hope. Jesus arrives in Bethany and finds that Lazarus has been dead for four days. And the fourth day would have signified the onset of Lazarus' decomposition. And to the Jews at the time would have meant that his death was final, that nothing else could be done. And as Jesus draws near to Bethany, Martha hears that he's coming and goes out to meet him. And here we find our first encounter. Martha begins the conversation saying in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And to us, this may sound like a resentful accusation where Martha is irritated that Jesus isn't there to fix the situation. We might assume that Jesus is a doctor who arrives four days after his patient is already dead. 
and we read Martha's words more with a tone of, Lord, how dare you? You let us down. This all could have been avoided if you were here to heal him. Which, this is honestly a telling response on our part. When we are suffering, we want Jesus to fix our problems and thus can primarily value him and recognize his presence to the degree that he does. And if I'm honest, this was the approach that I started with when studying this passage. But if we look closely, Martha is not harboring resentment against Jesus here. Rather, she is stating a fact that shows her faith in Jesus and her, in his power. This would be much more akin to saying, Lord, I wish you had been able to be here, and I know you would have prevented Lazarus' death. There's the element of lament, yet trust. There's no second guessing of Jesus' motives, just an honest recognition that Jesus would have been able to make the situation much different. And Martha follows this saying, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is also an expression of faith, recognizing that Jesus has a special relationship to the Father. She's not questioning that in her grief. And often when we approach Jesus, we assume that if something goes bad in our lives, it means that he must not care or otherwise is incapable of making something good happen. And for Martha to utter these words, words that she may not have even fully believed at that point, is for her to trust Jesus, even though the reality of Lazarus' death does not easily tend toward her belief. And here's where Jesus enters the conversation, saying, your brother will rise again. And in a sense, this is a frustratingly vague statement. Martha only gets the promise that her brother will rise again, but no hint as to when, where, or how. This is kind of like being told that you're going to be president one day without any other details. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. You have no idea how that will happen, when or why. So Martha clarifies, saying, I know that he will rise again on the last, in the resurrection on the last day. And with this statement, Martha expresses hope. And actually a hope that we Christians share, though with more clarity. But in this context, it seems to be more of a resigned, vague platitude than a personal, vital, and deeply comforting reality. What she says is true, yet insufficient. Why? Because of who she is speaking to. She is speaking to Jesus, who is to be the object of the, her hope as the Lord himself. And we find this in Jesus' response to Martha's expression of her insufficient hope. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is claiming to be the one person who has power over death and life. Who will be the one who brings about the resurrection on the last day. And in fact is the one in whom belief is needed to attain to the resurrection. And therefore what Jesus is calling her to believe is something personal something that is comforting in the here and now rather than at a vague distance. In Andrew Peterson's first book of his Wingfeather Saga, On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness, the main characters Janner, Tink, and Lily live in a world controlled by a tyrant named Nag the Nameless. And they find themselves up against this enemy who is looking for the jewels of Anira that, is, that are going to give him power and control over the world. And as they go through this story, they're continually wondering, what could these jewels be? We don't have them, yet they're being pursued. And spoiler alert, at, when they come to the end of the book, their mother reveals to them that they are the jewels of Anira and are in fact heirs to the throne of their homeland. 
And with this revelation comes a completely new understanding of the overprotectiveness of their mother and the various life experiences they had had along the way. The, the jewels had been revealed to be a personal reality. And this is much like what Jesus is doing here with Martha. She is being told that the hope that she is seeking is in fact a person. And that means that the reality of eternal life and victory over death is something that can be experienced now. If only she believes in the one who is Lord over life and death. In fact, with Jesus' question of, do you believe this? We are confronted with the reality that unbelief is more deadly than death. As death is final for those who do not believe. This is because it is only through Jesus that we have life and have resurrection. And by life or live here, Jesus is meaning eternal life. Life knowing and relating to God, which is what we were made for. And the relationship in which we thrive. So much so that even though our body dies, we will still have life. And by resurrection, Jesus means that all believers will be raised again bodily. And Martha responds to this with resounding belief. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. These words are clear and are in fact one of the clearest confessions of Jesus' divine identity in the Gospels. Jesus accepted the hope that Jesus has offered and then goes farther in recognizing that it is only the Lord himself who can make such a statement. So what do we do with this encounter? First, we need to locate our hope. Is it the vague, abstract, insufficient hope that Martha holds? Or is it the deeply personal hope that we have by believing in Jesus? One will leave us mildly comforted and the other will prove a source of strength in times of grief. It's the difference between the well-meaning yet shallow, at least they will rise again, and the deeply consoling knowledge that your believing loved one is in the tender care of Christ, who is their life, and that one day they will be bodily raised, living in a glorified body. Second, we need to realize how robustly relational our believing is. Martha has the hope of Israel right, and that Lazarus will rise again on the last day. But she has missed the relationship with Jesus that actually makes that reality. We cannot settle for merely knowing about Jesus and identifying our believing and knowing with information. Rather, we must understand our believing and knowing God as we do in the context of our human relationships. So the specific calling here is to turn to Jesus in our grief and believe that as the dead and resurrected one who is Lord over all, that he will work even the most devastating circumstances to the glory of God. In that Jesus is not calling you to be happy in a circumstance where mourning is appropriate. He's not calling you to ignore the pain, but to trust him. And specifically trust that because of what Christ has accomplished in our behalf, that death will not finally be victorious, that you are able to grieve as one who has hope, Hope that all who believed will be raised bodily to live in God's restored creation. And the only way to grasp that hope in a real way is through believing Jesus. Taking him at his word as you would believe your spouse when they say that they love you. After this encounter with Martha, Mary is sent out to meet Jesus. And while it was likely that Mary was meant to go out on her own, the crowd of Jews ends up following her out. And so this encounter between Jesus and Mary is quite public. And Mary's encounter with Jesus begins in verse 32. And we find immediately that she falls at the feet of Jesus and says something that will sound familiar to us. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. These are the same words that Martha began with. And then she weeps. 
We have no reason to impose our accusatory assumptions on Mary here either. She is expressing the same belief that Martha did in her statement, that they know that he would have been able to present, prevent Lazarus' death. She's not questioning his ability nor his intentions. But how does Jesus respond here? We see in verse 33 that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And you may see a note in your Bible saying that deeply moved here could also be translated as indignant because the Greek word here means anger, outrage, or emotional indignation. So Jesus responds to Mary and the Jews' tears with anger. Why does he respond in this way? Shouldn't he be responding with compassion? The first question we need to answer is, who is Jesus angry at? And considering that his anger is in response to, this, to the, seeing the weeping of Mary and the Jews, we can conclude that his anger relates to their actions here. And since we don't have the hearts of Mary and the Jews revealed here, we're going to have to come to the conclusion based on the context of the passage. We know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus, as he has planned on doing so since verses 4 and verses 11. So it would seem unlikely that Jesus is angry that Lazarus is dead. So what is there to be angry at? It would appear that Jesus' anger is twofold. First, he was angry at the pain that the Mary and the Jews have endured. Death was never meant to be and is a result of sin, and it brings about pain. And Jesus has come to restore and give life, to conquer death and reverse its devastating effects. And these people are in despair over the death of Lazarus. Second, and this one is the one that's a little bit harder to swallow, is that he is angry at that Mary and the Jews here have failed to believe. Jesus sees their pain and desires that they hold fast to the hope that he has to offer. Instead, they are grieving without hope, or at least without a sufficient hope. And Jesus sees that despair and unbelief are truly dangerous and capable of destroying them in the fullest sense of the word. Say you are a parent who has just found out that your child has been addicted to drugs and you found out by getting a call telling you that your child has overdosed and you rush to the emergency room. Anger would be an appropriate emotion here, especially since you have warned your child about the effects and consequences involved with drug abuse. And your anger would be directed at both the, those who sold them the drugs and got them involved, yet also at your child who did not believe you and thus got themselves into a situation where they were hurt. And to not be angry here would actually be a failure to care about your child. And this may seem insensitive to those who struggle with doubt, considering that Jesus is angry at unbelief in the midst of tragic circumstances. This may seem like a call just to hold yourself together, appear strong, and say that you believe to avoid reprimand. But that would be to miss the heart of Jesus' anger which is exceptionally easy to do, as human anger is corrupted by sin and therefore so unlike the anger of God. Jesus' heart here is to see these grieving, hurting people come out of despair, to see that death is not as final as it might seem in the moment, that there is a way to live forever, and that that is through Jesus. Mary and the Jews have cut themselves off from the only one who can bring life, who has power over death, even despite being time and time again exposed to Jesus' life-giving ability. They are stuck in their grief and have turned away from the route, of the route out of despair. And for Jesus, that is cause for anger, yet also for grief. Jesus' anger leads him to action, and he asks where Lazarus has been buried. 
And upon arrival at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus weeps. And much like the case of his response to Mary and the Jews' weeping, it is somewhat difficult to determine exactly what Jesus is weeping over. Certainly there's an element of grief for Lazarus, but Jesus also knows that Lazarus is walking out of that grave in mere moments. And we find the Jews attempting to interpret his tears in verses 36 and 37. Some thought that Jesus' tears were a sign of his love for Lazarus, which is most certainly true, yet this love is going to show in his raising of Lazarus from the dead. And the second group questions Jesus, saying, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Notice how this echoes the words of Mary and Martha, yet does so in a way that throws Jesus' ability and intentions in question. They are doubting Jesus here. Even though they had seen him heal a blind man, they did not believe that Jesus would be able to do anything here and were left in despair and then Jesus is thus moved to grief over their unbelief. He wants to see them live in line with the hope that they have been given by God and for them not to believe has led them to great pain. And Jesus, as a good shepherd, does not want his flock to suffer. Much like the tears that would come from the parent whose child is overdosed because they failed to heed their warnings, so Jesus cries here. And if we continue to think along the lines of the example of the drug-addicted son or daughter, we find that this combination of anger and grief is quite appropriate. Anger at both the unbelief that is the cause of the issue and the pain of the consequences reveals a love that wants to see the child flourish. In grief, lamenting the same unbelief and pain communicates sympathy and compassion toward one whom you love, who is hurting. And the situation is very similar here. And what's beautiful about this emotional response is that Jesus is not oversimplifying. He's not reducing the difficulty of the reality that he is walking into. He holds together grief in a situation where both are appropriate. And D.A. Carson explains this in a way that is extremely helpful. The same sin and death, the same unbelief that prompted his outrage also generated his grief. Those who follow Jesus as his disciples today do well to learn the same tension, that grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance. What Carson is saying here is that only to grieve or to only be angry in a situation where both is appropriate would be an unbalanced response. We find that our God is such that he cares for us and is compassionate when we are grieving and despairing, yet loves us too much to leave us there. Rather, he calls us to believe that he can give life. But how can we believe when death is so near, when we can't see how a situation would turn out well? As we arrive at our last encounter, that of Jesus and Lazarus, we find that Jesus has thus far called Martha to a greater hope and has responded with anger and grief to the despair and unbelief of Mary and the Jews mourning with her. And this encounter with Lazarus is the key that holds these things together and shows us why Jesus challenges the unbelief of those grieving. So Jesus arrives at the tomb, grieving and angry, and then tells them to take away the stone. We know what is about to happen, but Martha, who has re-entered the picture, objects on the grounds that since Lazarus has been dead for, for four days, that he is not going to smell very good, as he would have begun to decompose. This is the moment where we see Martha's confession of belief in verse 27 is one that she has not fully grasped. 
Because when it comes down to it, she does not believe that Jesus is really going to raise Lazarus. And to this, Jesus responds, Did not I tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Imagine being told by a friend that they're just going to buy you a car. Most of us just aren't going to believe them. We're not going to take them at their word. We may even doubt their ability to do this. We don't usually believe when we hear something that might be too good to be true. Likewise, Martha is having a hard time finally believing at the moment of truth in this scenario. Death is too strong. Lazarus will smell. This can't happen. Jesus then prays, thanking the Father that he heard his prayer and had granted his request for Lazarus' life. And in verse 42, we find the purpose behind all of these encounters. Jesus is raising Lazarus so that they, Martha, Mary, and the Jews, would believe that the Father sent him. And this makes sense, considering how we've seen that unbelief is actually more deadly than death itself. And with that, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. And out came Lazarus. Jesus has overcome death merely by commanding Lazarus to come out of the grave. His word is effective and powerful. And for Mary and Martha, there should have been no clearer sign that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. They know that the one who offers us life and even resurrection after death cares for them and wants them to live in the comfort of knowing that he loves them and will bring about their ultimate good. And this passage calls us to a deep personal belief in Jesus as Lord of all, who can bring a dead man back to life with mere words. And to him we turn in our grief and our pain when death strikes. And we do so knowing that he cares as one who is the resurrection and the life, he guarantees that death, as unnatural, final, and terrible as it is, will not have the last word for those who believe in him. And as we believe, we will be moved to both anger and grief at the unbelief of the world, which without belief is left to be devastated by the effects of death, ever despairing as those without hope. So let us move toward those who do not have the hope of a resurrection and eternal life, and seek their good as Jesus has sought ours, showing them Jesus and calling them to believe. And with this sign, Jesus shows that he has dominion over death and can defeat it. But this isn't the ultimate resurrection of the last day. Lazarus will die again, and he did die, but did so knowing the one who is the first fruits of the true and final resurrection. By performing the sign, Jesus condemns himself to the, by, with the Jewish authorities who have become very uncomfortable with what Jesus has been doing and the power he has displayed. So they put him to death on the cross, but as one who is the resurrection and the life, the grave cannot and does not hold him. He rises again on the third day and then appears to the disciples. And in doing so, Jesus performs the ultimate sign of his power over death and promises us, promises us that one day we will be raised with resurrection bodies like his. Lazarus is merely a foretaste of the life-giving, life-restoring power of God. So we are to cling to this hope, even in the midst of the reality of death. Yes, we may and should grieve over death, but we do so knowing that for those who believe that death is not final, in fact, it is merely a stepping stone on the way to resurrection, and that is a comforting reality for all who know the risen, crucified and risen Lord. 
I will end with Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians regarding their grieving of those who passed. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Christian, this is your hope. So cling to it and believe in the one who offers us such a beautiful resurrection. Let's pray. Lord of Lords, you are Lord over life and death. And I pray that you would help our unbelief in the midst of grief. That we would look to your words and believe that you are the resurrection and the life. Comfort us with this assurance. And we may thus witness to an unbelieving world by our hope in the face of death. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.